and welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and video show which brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you're new to the channel, please subscribe so you won't miss a new episode. I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Professor Jenny Cross. Jenny, welcome to the program. Thanks, Fritz. I'm really happy to be here talking with you today. Let me introduce uh, you to the audience. Uh, you are a community sociologist doing research with and for community agencies and groups to address community issues. You are a professor in the Department of Sociology at the Colorado State University, and if I'm correct, almost for 18 years right now. Yep. Founder and director of the Institute for Research in the Social Science. Uh, director of Research in Institute for the Built Environment, published a number of papers, uh, and I would bundle them to the on the design of the world we live in. And you live and work are a native of Fort Collins, Colorado, USA. So again, yeah. Jenny, welcome to the program. Thanks now, so much. Uh, in, prepa in, in preparation of our chat, of our discussion, uh, I watched one of your TED Talks. I mean, great TED Talk, recommend everybody to have a look at that. So talk about the three myths of behavioral change, because that's going to be the main topic in my discussion with you, change, norms, behavior. And what struck me in when I was uh, looking at that, and I think I recognize that in myself, is a quote you had there, the greatest adversary, adversary is common sense when changing behavior. Yeah. Uh, could you go into that? That, that? that 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 triggered me. That you know, it's such a <clears throat> it's such an interesting thing that people really do think that sociology is common sense. In one of my first courses when I was an undergrad, I took our professor had this little quiz and the whole class took this quiz on do you think it's this or that, right? And so many of those things are kind of common sense. And what we find actually is that social science often contradicts our common sense or there are kind of two common senses, right? Like that people use all the time, right? Um, do opposites attract or do birds of, you know, a feather flock together, right? And it's not that those two things aren't true. It's just that people just choose them selectively to explain whatever they want when the reality is that um, in in most of social human life, birds of a feather flock together. And there are lots of ways that um, our flocking together is good, but there are also ways that how human beings flock together is actually really bad for society. So it's not kind of so simple as either one of those things. And then it's also... How do we can't how do we counteract that kind of human tendency when we need to and we're often um, kind of following common sense principles rather than actually following science and we're kind of fighting what science tells us is actually the path towards the outcome that we want. Okay, uh, my immediate question when you describe it like that is uh, has it been studied why that change is there? Why common sense is that an adversary? Well, <clears throat> you know, human psychology is such an interesting thing that, you know, we need to be able to make quick judgments about the world to know if going in this direction or down that path is going to be 
you know, safe or life ending, right? And so we use all kinds of mental shortcuts. They just don't always help us. So like evolutionarily, right, our ability to kind of bundle a lot of information and make quick judgments on it, you know, helps us. Um, but when we're really trying to make change in the world, um, we actually have so much more information that's available to us. And we could take, you know, longer to understand that better and we'll, you know, make better choices if we do that. So here's a really good example of where common sense does not serve us well. Uh, there were a group of people in Canada that wanted to really improve the rates of reporting for sexual violence. And there are a lot of, you know, um, well-known, highly publicized cases, both in the U.S. and in other places. And I won't, you know, mention the perpetrator's names because we're not actually interested in them. We're interested in how do we respond differently so that we help reduce the rates of violence, that we support um, all the people who have been the victims of violence, and even most importantly, that we go beyond um, helping people who are victims and reducing the number of people who are victims, that we actually move towards changing our you know, society and our structures and our systems so that they support people better in order to reduce all of that harm. So when the group of people in Canada first started working on this, they thought that the way to persuade people to take action, to do something, was to highlight these cases. And highlighting those bad cases, science tells us, is not a good strategy. And when they did what um, my TED Talk suggests they should do, which is to kind of focus group it and like learn from the people, they found that people were really turned off by those images and turned off by those cases. And what they found was more compelling was to recognize that when we're thinking about these cases of violence, what people really need is to be believed. Women who don't feel believed or men who don't feel believed are not going to take their cases to the law and take it into courts. So they shifted their whole focus of their campaign from saying, stop these bad people and showing all the bad people and the harm, like let's stop the harm, right? Let's document the harm in order to stop the harm. And they pivoted to what do people really want and need? Their campaign is called hashtag I believe you. And you can search that and find, you know, find them. And that hashtag and that whole campaign strategy is so much more effective because it connects with human beings in their heart. It connects with what people need, right? That when people have been harmed, what they need is to feel believed. And telling people, I believe you, both tells people, friends and supporters, what they should do differently. It tells us all what's the behavior that we desire. It stops highlighting the bad actors and it helps people that have been harmed to feel like, oh, I'm I'm going to be safe. But it took them a while to get from their common sense, which is let's advertise the badness to this more positive um, framing, which is understanding where do we want to go in the world and how do we frame all of our efforts towards where we're going instead of what we think the problem is. Okay, um, you just mentioned an interesting word, the word framing. Um, is another way to, to think about social science as how to frame something, or is that too narrow? What would your definition be of what is social science? <clears throat> so, <laughs> social science is a, a, a huge concept. It, it covers dozens of fields of science from people studying really big 
uh, like macro phenomenon, uh, people studying, you know, big things over time and history to really small things, people studying, you know, kind of psychology and human interaction. The field of sociology, which is my own field, always thinks about all of the different levels of social society from what am I doing as a person? How am I thinking? How am I relating to you, one person? How am I relating to small groups? How do we organize ourselves? How do we organize society? So we think about, so the social sciences kind of map all of those levels from individuals to groups, to societies, to history. Um, so, so social science covers a big terrain. Um, what was the other part of the question there? Well, uh, I was triggered by the word framing. Uh, so, ah, uh, yes. Because you, 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 in your example, um, it read like is thinking about how to frame a message to trigger change or to trigger behavior. And I was just wondering if this is just a fancy way of talking about framing something to get people to do what you want, or is there something more about that? So framing is a language that's used by social scientists in many different types of fields. Psychologists talk about framing specifically related to messages. You can frame, if you're trying to persuade people to change their individual behavior, you can frame behavior as um, what's the loss that people might have by something. And this you can find out about in my TED talk, or you can frame it positively, what is gain? So what is lost versus what is gain? And there's some kind of psychological biases for individual people. Sociologists talk about framing in a much bigger sense, which is how do we actually diagnose what a problem is and then think about what that solution is. So people who study social movements and big groups talk about framing in that context too. In the example that I was giving, one of the things when we're thinking about change is whether we have a problem-focused orientation or whether or not we have a future hopeful vision-oriented focus on what we're doing. And so those are three different ways that people might talk about framing from tiny messages to approaches to actually our view of the world and what is the project we're up to. Okay, that actually, uh, thanks by the way for clarifying that, um, brings me to an, uh, another question for you. Uh, and that is, uh, what's the typical question and who are the typical people who would then ask you for support and help? Can you cross the board or a specific type of functions people have? That's a great question. I love this question. I tell people all the time, especially people I'm newly interacting with, that the social science tools that we use for change are topic agnostic. They don't care at all what you're trying to change in human life or society. Um, so who are the people who come to me? They're really, really diverse. I have people come to me who are looking for help. I also have people who come to me and say, I listened to your TED talk and I follow those principles and here's what I've done. So a little sampling of people, the folks in Canada who did made the campaign hashtag, I believe you, um, you know, they watched the TED talk and really tried to do good implementation as they created that. I've been contacted by people who work in manufacturing and are the producers of gloves. They're really concerned with worker safety and that's why gloves are created. But human beings want um, 
to maintain their full tactile sensation. And so workers often take their gloves off because they don't feel like they can really feel what they're doing well. And so then they end up not protecting themselves in the ways they should. So um, to me, those are really diverse things, right? Topics from we want to kind of shift our legal system and support people better who are victims of domestic violence to glove manufacturers who are trying to improve worker safety in the world. So, so much diversity in the people uh, who come to me. Uh, often people, you know, approach change with the perspective that they know who the people are, that they want their behavior to be different. But I always say to them, if you're, if you think that what you're about is changing behavior, you're, you already have the wrong approach because uh, what's really happening is that we have built um, social structures and institutions and patterns that constrain people's behavior or make the make healthier behavior mm -hmm. really hard to do. And so people aren't doing that. And so we should shift our focus from looking at the dozens or hundreds or thousands of people that are engaging in a particular way and ask ourselves, what is wrong with the structures that they're in that are causing them to make these choices, right? So if we think about the workplace, like what's wrong with the workplace environment that workers are so dissatisfied with their protective gloves that they don't want to wear them, right? So we shouldn't assume that human beings don't wanna protect their health. So there's something else going wrong you know, with that setup, right? Why is it that they feel like the gloves are such a hindrance? Um, if we want people to make other choices, what's keeping them really from making those healthy choices? Got it. Hey, I'm gonna, an introduction question. Uh, is there now more or less interest in uh, social, uh, social, um, social science and psychology? Is there more or less interest now than uh, compared like five or 10 years ago? You know, I think that the interest in the, I, I'm not sure I would call it interest. I think I might say the realization that to address the complex problems that the world is facing requires us to use the whole breadth of knowledge from across all of the social sciences. Um, I think that there's growing, you know, recognition and interest in that, but we still struggle because we often don't define the social sciences as science. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is one of the things that to me is the most heartbreaking that because we don't define it as science and we think that common sense is just as good, we just let people and organizations make it possible for us to just make choices about what we do based on preference rather than understanding that it's science. So I wanna give you a quick example that's really near and dear to my heart. In the late 1990s, Columbine High School had a mass shooting event. Mm -hmm. The research from that found that what could have prevented that are two things. One is connecting the social network. People in that school, all the stakeholders, parents, teachers, administrators, police officers, community members. They all had different bits of information that were not integrated in the network. So the network was fragmented. So the knowledge that was necessary to detect and identify those kids as a threat was there. 
but the group, the community at Columbine High School wasn't able to detect it because those pieces of information were not connected in the group. So connecting social networks is a scientifically proven, you know, strategy and necessity for good decision-making if we're thinking about groups and society. So that's one piece. The second piece is that to prevent it actually requires group decision-making rather than individual decision-making. And this report came out in the 1990s. What did we learn from Columbine and how do we prevent it in the future? Now, here's the heartbreaking piece. School districts and some school administrators think that individual decision-making versus group decision-making is just their choice, right? It's my management choice. I might not wanna have group decision-making. So this century, a young woman at a high school in Colorado was killed um, in a school shooting. And the campus security officer at her, her school knew that that shooter was a threat, reported it to the upper administration and was ignored. So her death is the direct result of organizations not knowing that group decision-making is a scientifically proven strategy for prevention and not having the will to follow social science. So how do we correct that? Because now we're talking about real people's lives and we're talking about a young woman who's not here today because we didn't learn in my state from the Columbine report that told us what's the scientific approach to making sure this doesn't happen again and we didn't have the will to follow it. Okay, yeah, because the reason for asking you the question if it's more or less uh, uh, being recognized is let's see let's see i hope that's an, a, a, a true observation uh we see more and more people uh, ignoring science and say look no uh, i'm going to trust my gut feeling uh i believe that my common sense is right and your science i don't believe that yeah yeah so there is a bigger trend of disbelieving science but we already don't think that social science is science so we just say, you know, my common sense, like, no, I don't want to have a response team on my campus that makes decisions about these kinds of threats as a group. Rather, I'm just going to make that choice as an individual, right? That's a leadership, you know, choice and that principle. So is it that that principle, you know, you know, is wrong and doesn't believe science and should be blamed? Or is it the system, right? Have we built educational institutions that don't recognize the science and say, we are going to operate based on science. And science says that if we make group decisions about threats, we'll make the right choice. Okay, so to what extent can you make use of your own uh, practice and your own background then to change the way people feel about science? Is that possible? That's such a great question. Uh, I haven't, I don't, I don't talk on that topic very much, so I don't have an immediately prepared thing, but of course my immediate response is, yes, of course, <laughs> social science really does understand how to shift this. There are some really brilliant thinkers in the field of deliberative decision-making that are asking this question, how do we move groups of people in a community out of this really polarized way of thinking that is especially 
at a high right now in the United States. And they've really documented the ways that we can bring people together and diffuse that us versus them thinking and bring people together to actually um, discuss and deliberate um, and make choices. It could be about how do we organize the budget? How do we organize like the city's spending budget and spending priorities? Or it could be, how do we think about a new policy that we'd like to adopt or not? And the potential to both diffuse existing polarization and kind of, you know, political camps and to highlight and value the science so that science, you know, is brought into that decision making. But okay. doing it requires, you know, a structured context and uh, a facilitated conversation. And that's what lets us get over, you know, our kind of default into okay. um, our biases. Uh, you're now talking about applying it for, I would say, government organizations, institutes uh, for society. Uh, to what extent could you also uh, apply it for a business community and maybe, or a business question, and maybe that's an environment where you can produce much more hard facts to prove that what the science tells you actually is beneficial. You know, that something really exciting and interesting has just occurred to me. One of the things I tell people all the time is that, uh, organizations are the hardest to change, that they have these really entrenched ways of doing things and it just is hard to change them. But one of the other things that we know is that some kinds of change are actually easier inside organizations. So for example, much of the work I've done is on energy and energy conservation and um, schools are a place where we're always teaching students expectations. This is how we expect you to behave and what we expect you to do. So schools are some of the commercial buildings where we've had the greatest success in changing not just individual behaviors, but group and organizational behaviors towards conservation. And that's because those organizations have a philosophy that their job is to be stewards of resources yep. and to train future leaders. And so in that organizational context, it's really easy to integrate you know, new kind of patterns of behaviors and to set new expectations for how we're going to operate in the world. So because any kind of institution or organization is an organized group of people that has a kind of mission and purpose, it is possible to actually help transform a bunch of people at once because you have a context in which they relate to each other, have relations, and have this capacity to set expectations with each other. Great. So who knows? Now, in all the years you've been uh, doing this, um, are there any, I'd say, biggest learnings, failures or mistakes? Say, look, hey, that's actually for me an example where I've actually learned a lot from. You know, I think every project <laughs> is something I've learned a lot from that, you know, I think this is the... Um, this is the key thing, right? That in all the work that we're doing where we're trying to make change, you either are engaged with a group of people in a process where you assume that you are not an expert, but that rather you are trying to use expert knowledge in your process 
and that at every stage you're trying to learn, those are the successful projects. The successful projects assume they don't know the answer to begin with, and they're on a path of discovery, and all of the participants in it think that they're on a learning journey together versus people who think, oh, we know what the answer and the strategy is, and we're going to just implement that and kind of force you know, our ideas onto others. Got it. Uh, what inspires you, by the way? Is there, does this, um, are there examples in your work that, hey, that, that actually what inspires me? Or do you get that uh, outside of the work? You know, uh, I think we all are here on this earth with a particular gift to, you know, share and to deliver. And I think that I know um, that my path and passion is around helping people to make transformation. And so I'm inspired by every individual, every group, every project where people are asking the question, how do I, how do I make change and how do I support others in making change, you know, more successfully. Right. So the hard stuff is the most rewarding, right? Like we're struggling, we're not sure. And overcoming that hard stuff and saying, oh, we really did not know how to make change and look, you know, what we learned. So okay. I'm inspired all of the time by all the individual people I work with, all the projects I work with that I know that this is my path to help facilitate change. Okay. So uh, can I make the leap then that success for you is when people start to ask questions? I hadn't thought about it that way before, but I think, yes, I think that's right. Yeah. When people are asking questions and searching for new answers. Yeah. Because what I've learned from this interview so far is common sense, gut feeling uh, is basically um, I'm prejudiced towards a particular opinion and I'm going to stick to it. But if somebody is giving me the facts, hey, uh, I will be change i can change my mind mm -hmm. yeah and i think groups that are thinking like how how can we you know how can we make change right how how can we do what we're doing better if we think about the folks in canada who you know i didn't interact with or coach or work with them they just contacted me later to say you had an impact on us because we you know listened to your advice but the story from them is we were learning, right? We were seeking and we were willing to change our own approach in order to facilitate change for others. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah, that's indeed, uh, I think, an, an, a good uh, answer to what I was looking for. Um, we're running almost out of time, Jen. I, I love because say, talking to you about this topic, by the way. Um, one question was you're talking about change this also uh, has a relationship between at the end of the day influencing somebody's behavior now uh that's the outcome uh does the attitude which people have you want to change does it have to be the same or can you uh facilitate or support change with people with different attitudes to get something done or do you have to design for each individual type of a group of people people's attitudes 
are are not the thing that needs changing. I was in a group of people right after I finished my PhD and I was sitting around talking with people and they were saying, hey, can we just get people to change their behavior or is that enough or do we need to get people to change that behavior for the right reasons? And I said, look, I don't care. I don't care what people's motivations or interests or reasons for engaging the behavior. I care about what they're doing in the world and what that impact is. And I don't care what motivates them. I just care what they do because it's what they do that has an impact. So since then I've learned more and I know that people have really deep seated values. And in order to encourage people to change or to adopt new behaviors, we do have to connect with people's values and people with different values can be engaged in similar behaviors. So they come to that common behavior through, through different avenues, um, but they can both support that same effort. One of my favorite politicians in the United States is from Colorado, and he was a Green Party um, member and a county commissioner and managed to bring together very conservative, you know, ranchers and farmers with leftist progressives. And that's because he said, I understand what both of their values are, and I know how to bring them together around our common interest. And I think that there's much more potential for that than we've really been realizing in recent years. Hey, what you have in common uh, is uh, for me, one of my leading questions as well uh, when I talk about community building, but won't go into that. Um, almost at the end, Jenny, um, what would your advice be to young people out there um, from your old, what do they have to take on board to be successful? My advice to young people would be to really be getting in touch with and discovering and uncovering your own kind of uniqueness and strengths that we each have, you know, something particular to share with others in this world and um, getting clear on what your gift is, is, uh, you know, can what, what helps you kind of find the right spots and the right places and the right opportunities. Okay. I still have a question about that advice because uh, it sounds a little bit ambiguous. Like you have to be uh, unique uh, and you have to share. And so uh, is this about being individualistic and look what sets me apart? What, what makes me unique? So how do you balance that with, okay, how can we then um, use that uh, uniqueness to connect it to the rest? Right. So I think it's maybe not uniqueness and like, like I'm special and different, right? But really understanding what is the kind of core of the gift that you offer. Right. So I have some I have some friends who are scientists and they say, you know what I'm really good at is translating between these two fields. Now, that's not unique because that's not the only person who can do that. Right. But it is a special skill that not everyone has. And and it has a particular, you know, kind of place and opportunity. Right. So getting clarity about like what is what is that gift that you bring? Um helps people think about, oh, this is, there are lots of things that we're good at. We all have more than one strength in the world, but what's the gift that you are especially good at and that inspires you to keep 
to share it with others? That's a, a great question for anybody and everybody out there listening or watching this to think out and answer that for themselves. Um, hey, Jenny, I want to thank you. Uh, you have pointed out to me that it's very dangerous to go with your common sense, your gut feeling. Um, so that got me a little bit scared, but I'll get over that. <laughs> but for now, I want to thank you so much for sharing your insights on why social science is so relevant and what it can bring to society. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.